So this is the um, ending of our third full day together on this retreat. And, uh, about this time in the retreat, one begins to feel or experience some of the fruits of the work. Maybe some more uh, calming of the mind, more stability, uh, slowing down, the momentum of what pushes us through our lives and beginning to connect more, the deeper sense of our inner awareness, Maybe uh, feeling a bit of calm and peace, but also there's uh, other kinds of fruit that arise from the practice. As we become more present, more here, we begin to also see that which obstructs our ability to be fully present. They aren't the kind of fruits we would really like, (laughs) but they are the fruits of our practice. When these hindrances and obstructions arise, it's not that anything is going wrong or that we're a bad person somehow. It's actually what's meant to happen. It means that the practice is working. On the one hand, we'll experience sometimes very refined states of mind where there's a lot of subtle inner experience, subtle sensation, (coughs) feeling of real gatheredness, real unshakability of heart. That's one kind of fruit, but then other times we're going to experience what pulls us out, how the mind keeps running out. In a certain way this practice is about bringing the mind home, and it just resists. And so we get to see where it runs, where it goes, and and what kind of patterns and habits and tendencies there are that come to undermine our capacity for, for fully being here. And that's, that's, you know, to give oneself credit for the courage that it takes and the staying power it takes to actually see some of these obstructions. Most of the world, most of the people in the world, and often us as well, just run round, pushed along by the energy of the mind as it runs out, looking for some resting place and never quite finding it. It's hard to really stop. There was a an incident in the Buddha's life when he became aware of uh, someone that lived in the vicinity where he was practicing that was a very, very dangerous person. They were what we would call now a serial killer, serial murderer. This person, his name was Angulimala, those, many of you be aware of the story of Angulimala. He was someone that was actually extremely bright and intelligent as he was growing up. 
but then a trick was played upon him because people were jealous of him and he he landed up being excluded from this from the school that he was training in the master who had taken them on as a pupil so as a result he became very bitter and you know as the story unfolded uh, <coughs> bit of a long story he landed up becoming a murderer and he vowed to, to murder a thousand people and then cut off their little fingers and wear them Ang- angular mala mala is like beads you know when you mm-hmm. do your mala beads angular mala angular is like the a little finger of a hand. He had a bead, beaded necklace, so pretty serious pathological dude <laughs> out there on the streets. And uh, he, he killed you know, so many people, and then he came to um, one day realize he just needed to kill one more person to get the complete set that he wanted. And the at the same time, the local king had got together an army to try and take out this guy. The people was absolutely terrified of him. And his mother, his mother, who still loved him, actually, wanted to protect him. So she went out into the forest. He lived like a wild beast in the forest. She went out to try and track him down. And the Buddha, it said in the the mornings when the Buddha would meditate with his divine eye, he would see all that was happening around. And he saw that Angirumala was about to take the life of his mother. He wouldn't stop. Nothing would stop him. And there's some karmas that are very, very profound in terms of the difficulty of dissolving them. And one of them is taking the life of a parent. It's not considered a good thing to do. It's a very heavy, it's called a heavy karma to have created. So the Buddha, but he also saw that this guy, even though he was so deluded and so distorted and had generated so much unwholesome karma, extraordinary amount, he also saw that he had this, um, this real potential, that underneath all of that there was this tremendous potential. So he went out into the forest to track down Angulamala and to try and preempt him from his intention to take another life, which would have been, as it turned out, the life of his mother. So he eventually the Buddha found where Buddha Nui was, he appeared before Angulamala. And Angulimala thought, oh, here's someone I can kill. So he went to, to go towards the Buddha, but the Buddha started moving. He was actually walking at a very steady pace, but however fast Angulimala ran after the Buddha, he couldn't capture him. He couldn't get him. Buddha just walking, very peacefully walking, walking. Angulimala was running, 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 but couldn't catch him, couldn't catch him. And in the end, he screamed, stop! And the Buddha turned around and he said, I have stopped. You should stop. You should stop. This is, uh, in a way, the sort of first Zen. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) Just stop. It was a teaching, his, his, you know, transmission 
to this being, just stop, stop, stop the craziness. And he got it, Angiyamala heard it, and he stopped. And then it said that actually, in in the meeting with the Buddha, such was the power of the Buddha that Angiyamala actually had an awakening. And he realized, my God, what he was about to do and what he had done, and he was t- it terrified him. And at that moment, he he became the Buddha's disciple. And then he went forth, he became a monk. And people, and then the, the army turned up to the same point that the Buddha was having this exchange. The army, the king's army, finally tracked him down. And they wanted to capture him. And the Buddha said, no, you know, he belongs to me. So the Buddha took him and ordained him. It's a very beautiful story, actually, as you realize the compassion and the power of the Buddha and no, everyone, you know, there's no one that's not redeemable, that can't turn themselves around, however far down the path of evil they've gone or unskillful action. So then Angiyamala actually had created a lot of karma, so he had a hard time. Even though he was awakened, he still had stuff that, you know, he would have terrible dreams and then people would throw rocks at him. They would, you know, they, when they realized who he was, they would become terrified. And the Buddha said, you know, you just got to bear it. You got to bear with the results of what's gone before. But this stopping, learning to to stop, when we come into retreat, and we stop, we still feel that momentum not quite the same mind stream as <laughs> Angulimala, but we have our mind stream, and, the, and it's, in a way, karma is momentum. It's that which just rolls on and pushes us on. It has enormous power to it, and it's, it's actually hard to stop. And the mind will go then into different reactions. It won't allow for us to really rest and peacefully be here. We'll have this momentum to it. And some of these, this momentum, some of it can be very positive aspiration to do good, to fulfill our duties, to do the best we can to respond in our families and communities and to the world. Very wholesome. But some of the momentum is, is bound up with these energies that are actually associated with the experience of suffering. And so when we stop, it's very hard to bear with those tendencies. So these, these hindrances, as they're called, or nirvana, not nirvana, unfortunately, but nirvana. <laughs> they can take us to nirvana. They actually ultimately become teachers. They're not bad. They're awakening. They awaken and challenge us to develop skill in response to them. But in, you know, as we start to to gather and collect and stabilize our samadhi, then we have some power to begin to able to contemplate the hindrances rather than just become shaped by them or reactive to them, or deluded by them. 
So we need to get to know the, these, these particular kinds of energies of the mind when they appear. The first one is called Kamachanda, which means the thirst for some kind of sensory experience. It's a certain, there's, there's, it's, a, it's a form of desire, there's different kinds of desire, but this is a form of desire that's always seeking some absorption into something. No, and, and, and in a meditation, it, 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 it gets very frustrated, actually, because <laughs> there's not much to absorb into, other than what I said the other day, that you know, after we've seen and you know, checked it all out, you know, there's, there's, there's not the TV, there's not our magazines, there's not you know, the fridge that we can go to. You know, there's, there's just a very limited focus for this this desire this this sensory desire so we get so we get to be able to reflect on it so the desire for some kind of pleasant sound or sight or feeling or ideal or thought or sensation Satiating that desire, this kind of desire is like a billion dollar industry. You know? This keeps us going, keeps us going, keeps us searching, keeps us keeps us looking. It's very powerful. And the and the delusion in it is that it never quite gets satiated. It's a bit like, well go here, and so we go there. It, pushes us to the next thing, but then it's a bit like when we have that, then it's like, well, what about the next thing? You know, there's, there's no end to desire. It's always pointing to the next over the hill. It never points to itself. It's a very powerful force. And now we have the situation globally where, there's, where our desire for gratification, for consumption, is about to completely consume the whole planet. And there's still not an end to it. We still can't stop. We still can't stop. We're about to burn up. You know, the writing is not on the wall anymore. It's in our faces. It's on our faces. It's so clear. The messages are so clear. It's completely and utterly unsustainable this level of desire and consumption. But desire will not stop until, even if the planet is burnt dry, it will still not stop. Until we challenge it and transform it and work consciously with it, turn it around. So when when that energy appears, it's, you know, it's uh, what, what... Ajahn Chah called the wanting of the mind, the mind always wanting something more. Or it perhaps projects into the meditation, we want to be a little more peaceful. We we want to have a bit more of a refined state of mind than we're actually is here. So it keeps it keeps this sense of it's very hard to really arrive where we are because of this agitation. 
or Ajahn Chah used to say, it's a bit like, he had very earthy examples. He said, it's a bit like a dog that's got mange. It's scratching, he doesn't, he kind of runs around trying to get relief. Scratches against a tree here, runs over there, doesn't realize it's actually on the skin. It's like when we're consumed with this energy of kamachandha, we run around the world trying to get relief, but we don't realize it's, it's in the mind. The relief isn't going to come from scratching. Start itching again. So we have a chance, you know, to contemplate that energy in this situation. And very near, but the sort of converse opposite is a different kind of desire, which is the desire to not experience what we're experiencing. We want to experience something else, but we don't want what's here. It's called aversion. So the second hindrance, great hindrance, obstruction that will come up that we'll get to experience is this feeling of resistance or aversion or irritation. Sometimes it can be hatred, anger. And it's not to value judge these energies. It's not about saying they're good or they're bad or they're wrong. It's just, it's just when they're unconscious, they're quite dangerous. <laughs> and they destabilize our capacity for well-being. It's about making them conscious so we can work. Actually, within each of these energies, there is some very important wisdom, and something important in, in the energies themselves that we need to understand. And, and decant almost the, what is the energy really about at its deepest level. But when it's unconscious and just running wild, it really um, just creates a lot of turbulence for us, for others. So we want to be peaceful and we don't want the painful knee. Right there, the two hindrances operating. We want the room to be just so and then someone starts snoring or coughing or the lights are too too bright or they're not bright enough, you know, so it's, there's always this agitation. We don't want what we're experiencing or we can project out onto the world a lot of aversion. I remember once when I was on retreat and I was sitting having a meal and someone I didn't even really know walked in the room and I looked at them and I thought, oh, that person doesn't like me. And it was interesting how my mind had just projected aversion because I couldn't own my own aversion, <laughs> that I actually didn't like myself. The mind had projected it onto some poor person and then I had interpreted, I mean, the person just walked in the room for a meal you know, but the mind is so quick to project its unconsciousness onto the world around us. And then we react to our projection. It's got nothing to do with the other person. When I was in, in Kwazu, where I've been living, one of the... Um, for the Zulus, one of the creatures that they really 
don't like, they feel is a repository of all that is evil, is, is a frog. Mm-hmm. Poor little frog. Yeah, it's a bit like, I don't know, snakes or black cats or something in some cultures. So one day, is this young man that I knew that lived with us for a while, really strong, I mean they're very proud very Zulus are very proud they're quite warrior like you know um, history powerful warriors this young man, very strong young man came up to me shaking like a leaf because there was a frog in the garden it's like really just falling apart so I went and picked up, took it away well, you know, what was really happening was just, just this creature, but the mind, with this fear and aversion, had projected onto something and was reacting to its own projection. Nothing, nothing at all to do with the creature. And this is, you know, we all have our frogs. We all have people or cultures or situations or, you know, the mind will just project like that. We don't even catch it and we start reacting and interpreting and being shaped by the very energy of the unconsciousness of our own mind. So it takes a lot of honesty, this practice, to really... Because it's hard to admit that we actually have hatred or violence or aversion. We're conditioned to be so nice. (laughs) So it can be quite shocking. I knew that when I started practicing, I had the idea that I would be floating off on a pink cloud somewhere to Nirvana, wherever that was. It's sort of some very naive idea is about what I was, where I was going, and in fact, when I first started my monastic training, I couldn't believe the level of the amount of anger and aversion that I felt. But it took me a long time to have to face it because I kept pushing it away because it didn't fit with my self-image of being a nice spiritual person. Until one day, I couldn't, uh, you know, I couldn't push it away anymore. I exploded in a, a mess. Anger and upset. It was a very good moment, actually. Fortunately, I was on my own (laughs) 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 at that particular moment. But it was it was Ajahn Chah would say. So sometimes when you you can't go back and you can't go forwards and you can't go sideways, you can't go up and you can't go down. Then you really start to practice. Sometimes when you really, you, you know, like Angiramala, you, you have to stop. You can't move anymore. Your old strategies and your face then with the momentum, this karmic momentum of the habits of the mind, which, you, which we all have. There's nothing to be ashamed of. We all have profound anger sometimes. If you don't think you have then, you know, like, sometimes when we, as monastics in the early years, there'd be very little uh, food, or I'd be, as a young nun, I'd be at the bottom of the line. So the food would go down the line, and the cakes (laughs) 
wouldn't it would disappear before they'd get to me and one day I just got so I, you know again my nice spiritual idea of serving and giving up and then one day this cake just didn't get to me and I just really got so upset about it. I mean, it's such a and then every there was so little space for your ego that every little thing became one's possession and it was pathetic I used to rush to the Dharma Hall to get my seat before anyone could get there because it was my seat because there was so much else that it was eroded and I would and as I was I knew I'm mad I know I'm mad but I couldn't stop it's like the you know it's my seat and God help anyone that would sit on my seat <laughs> you know, so and and I knew it was a madness but it was it was humbling humbling to see oneself when one's caught in one of these hindrances And then the next two also twinned, the third one, people have spoken about it today, talking in the small groups, the the feeling of dullness that can come up. It's called Tita Mida, it's a sort of a, you know, know, on one level it can just be tiredness, one's tired and one rests and one's okay, but then on another level there can be this sort of opaque or dull state of mind. And a, and a deeper level, as one starts to contemplate that deeper, it can be a feeling of not really wanting to be here. And so one's shut down, one's not really embodied fully, one's, one's, there's all these um, mechanisms of, of, of closing one down, so we don't really feel, we're not fully embodied, we're not here, we're not really... Sometimes it can be quite near to feeling quite peaceful, but it's, it's really an aspect of the hindrance. It's an unconsciousness. And it's a hard state to work with, because when we get near it, we just go dull. And you go asleep. But if we, if we can actually start to feel into the edges of that, then sometimes even underneath, we were talking about today, sometimes... Underneath that, there can be feelings that we haven't really um, acknowledged fully yet of sadness or grief, fear, that are layered over with this unconsciousness that we experience as a dullness of mind. Sometimes when there's stronger emotions of desire and aversion start to calm down, then a lot of dullness can come up. Or conversely, a lot of restlessness. We feel very restless and agitated and anxious. These kinds of energies that keep the mind. Like the the Buddha said, it's like a bowl of water that's constantly being whipped up. And uh, what was once still water becomes like a very turbulent surface. He said, if you try to look in the water to see your reflection, you can't really see your reflection because there's too much turbulence. There's restless energy. It's very hard to contain. It also just drives one from one place to another. You sit here in the hall and then you think, no, I must go out and walk. And you go and walk. You think, no, I must go down to the dining room. You go and get a cup of tea. You think, no, I must go and rest. And... You know, again, it's this agitation that can't really rest. 
coupled with sometimes a, a feeling of anxiety. It's connected a little bit with the, the last hindrance of what's called doubt. It's not the doubt of a wholesome or healthy doubt that can inquire and look into and explore. It's the kind of doubt that just sabotages us, freezes us, undermines us. You know, you're sitting here practicing being with the breath and the mind will go, well, maybe I should be doing a different kind of retreat altogether. Maybe I shouldn't be doing Buddhist stuff. Maybe I'm not really a Vipassana. Maybe I should be doing Tibetan chants. Maybe I'm really a Christian mystic. (laughs) Maybe I should be focusing on the crown chakra and trying to open it up. Maybe what I really need is a psychic reading. (laughs) I cannot figure out what I need to do and go get my chart read. Maybe I should just go to the pub. <laughs> Forget all of this spiritual. You know, the, so you know, the mind can go into into the state of doubt. Am I doing it right? Tell me, someone, am I doing it right? <laughs> Have you ever felt that? It's so common, isn't it? It's sort of like, am I doing it right? And the, the difficulty with doubt is it's, one starts to try and then, it's so connected with our thinking mind, we try and think ourselves to an answer. But then we get an answer and then we doubt the answer. Even if the Buddha came and said, you're doing it right, we'd probably the next minute go, was that really the Buddha? <laughs> Am I really doing it right? It's a very... It's a very... Um, it's a very hard uh, state of mind to really see doubt. Because it keeps one then thinking and speculating and second-guessing and sabotaging. And so sometimes just to be able to know this is doubt, rather than trying to figure out doubt, trying to get an answer. Just to know things are doubtful. And just to, to know this is doubt. That which knows doubt is able to tolerate the unknown, the uncertain, which is, you know, life is uncertain. We don't always know. Or maybe we don't know from the thinking mind, can't always figure it all out for us. So that which can we can that which can know doubt isn't doubt. It is the buddhi, that which is knowing, that which is aware, that which is present. That which can know restlessness isn't restless. That which can know dullness you know, and this resistance to being here and wanting to check out isn't that. It can know it. That which can know aversion and desire isn't desire and aversion. It's the awakened, aware, present, knowing, jitta, heart. And it's because of that we can actually start to work with the hindrances. 
rather than be overwhelmed by them. It's because of that, like Angulimala, we can stop and we can actually reflect on these experiences if they come up and realize in that moment, as Ajahn Chah would say, each of these hindrances are like a, a sharpening, a stone for our sharpening our wisdom sword. You know, they're going to challenge us. We can't just, we have to meet them with patience or meet them with inquiry or meet them with kindness or meet them with skill of one sort or another. We've been looking today at at feeling, working with feeling. When the hindrances arise, it can be where it's very helpful to track back to where is the, what is the feeling, what is the sensation to know in the body. This is just unpleasant. When they arise, they're actually, generally speaking, quite unpleasant. And, the, and the, the Buddha encouraged us to know this is just unpleasant feeling, actually. At the heart of each hindrance is, is suffering. And we can just know, just keep knowing this is unpleasant feeling. If we add on to that, why is it here and why me and I don't like it, then we increase the suffering with more aversion. Or if we try and escape from the hindrance, distract ourselves, we increase the tendency uh, towards just seeking through desire some sort of distraction, which sometimes we need to do because we just can't tolerate the reality of the situation. But in these moments of when we really truly stop, like Angulimala, like the Buddha, still teaching us actually through time and space, still encouraging us to stop. This is a very profound teaching, just to keep stopping, just to keep having the courage and the strength to stop and to reflect on that which that momentum of the mind that keeps pulling us out and pulling us away from our true home. And as we do this, little by little, we begin to encourage those energies to be transformed and to encourage the mind through this activity that we've been applying of the path moments of attentiveness, moments of mindfulness, patient work, moments of receiving how it is. We little by little reverse, in the Zen tradition they call it the great reversal, we reverse the flow of the mind going out to bring it back home so it can taste and touch its deeper nature, its unshakable nature of awareness, presence. And when we taste that, when we taste that, then the hindrances have no power anymore. They might arise, but they don't have the same power to completely wash us away. And we know that we'll have the skill, 
We might lose it, but we'll have the skill to work with them. And in doing so, begin to grow this great Bodhisattva heart, unshakable heart, that can be in the world and can see these hindrances arising not only in our own mind, but in the world around, and will be able to respond, not with reactivity or furthering the suffering, but respond with with wisdom and compassion, as we see many great beings that have met many obstacles. For example, someone like Aung San Suu Kyi, under house arrest for 21 years, and used that time for practice, and that was stopping. She couldn't move, and yet she never lost faith. I just saw the other day she went to Norway to receive her long overdue um, Nobel Prize. And she said, I never had any doubt that I would come and receive this. (laughs) That's someone that knows how to know doubt (laughs) and not be swayed by it. That's someone who knows how to keep faith in the Dharma in spite of being the tremendous forces arrayed against her. I mean, surely she must have realized that her very life was in question in those circumstances. And yet the very power of her ability to meet not only her own inner hindrances, but the hindrances that were being arrayed against us, against her, was due very much to the power of her practice. And the practice always starts here. It's always very simple. It always returns to this moment. It's always doable. It's not always easy, but it's a doable path, a realizable path. This is why the Buddha taught it, for beings like us. And then one day we will find, we will be free, like Angirumala, even though there's some momentum that we work with from what's gone before, we will increasingly feel and find our minds and hearts freed up from these hindrances. And the Buddha said, when we do, it's a bit like someone that's been in debt that's freed from debt. He said, it's a bit like someone that's been on a long, long, long journey that's dangerous and they arrive in a safe place. He said, it's a bit like someone that's been very sick and then they become well. Or it's a bit like someone that's been in servitude and they become free. Or it's a bit like someone that's been in prison and they be, then they are released from their imprisonment. The mind finally, the heart, the jitta, can know its own true, unshakable luminosity and freedom, free from being imprisoned and constricted and deluded by the manifestation of these hindrances. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.